welcome to another edition of the Transparency Project, which is one of the podcasts on the Inside Lens Network, where we highlight criminal cases. And some of these cases are open investigations or they're unsolved as, as the ones that we will be presenting today. But our intent is to allow families to present information for consideration by the, you, the listeners. Our podcasts and our hosts in no way represent the guests. We don't claim to solve the cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. Our guests present their own information, and while we may suggest resources and assistance, we're not liable for whatever actions our guests take afterwards. So I'm here alone. I'm usually the co-host. I'm Delilah from Imagine Publicity. Um, our our regular esteemed host, Dennis Griffin, had um, another commitment today. But I'm really, really excited to bring back someone who's, whose cases are 50 years old. That's right. And I'm just going to read a little highlight of these cases, and then I'm going to bring on our guest. So on September 16th, I'm sorry, on September 26, 1967, then 17-year-old Ronald Anderson of Gulfport, Mississippi, died from a gunshot wound under his chin. His friend and roommate, Jeffrey Dennis Bass, was in the apartment when Anderson was shot. Bass did not immediately notify the police of Ronald Anderson's death. Instead, he called his aunt, who was a nurse. She came over to the apartment and reportedly cleaned Anderson's body. Authorities were then notified of the shooting, and following a court of inquiry, the death was ruled a suicide. 36 years later, on April 18, 2003, Ronald's 80-year-old father died a similar death. Dan Anderson was found in the driveway of his Gulfport home, dead from a gunshot wound to his head. His death was also ruled a suicide. However, Dan's surviving daughter, Phyllis Cook, believes her father and brother were murdered by members of the infamous Dixie Mafia. And Phyllis, I'm so happy to have you back. Um, you're always such a, a great guest to have uh, for several reasons. And plus the fact that after 50 years, I think, you know, something needs to give on these cases. So what I'd like for you to do first and foremost, let's give the listeners a little background information on what is the Dixie Mafia Oh, thanks, Delilah, and I appreciate you having me back on today. And I'm glad that you're the you're our host today. But I I did not find out anything concerning the Dixie Mafia. Let me let the you know audience know you know that I'm not really up on the Dixie Mafia, other than what I have read and seen and searched after the death of my little brother and my father. But I did not know that they were murdered for sure. We thought that they were, you know, it wasn't suicide until 2013 when I spoke with an investigator from the Gulfport Police. And that at that point is when I realized, hey, you know, it's not suicide. My little brother was actually murdered whenever the investigator said, I am 99.9% .9 sure your brother was murdered by a member of the Dixie Mafia. At that time, 
I found out that they were just a loosely knit bunch of thugs, that they are from Florida, Mississippi, Texas, Arkansas, Georgia. But my case, you know, was taking uh, actions in Gulfport, Mississippi. They were along the Highway 90 and the Gulf Coast. They had, they were involved in prostitution, gambling, narcotics. You know, they thrived like kudzu at the seedy clubs along the beach road of Highway 90. Uh, it was stated that they were over 300 bystands in Biloxi by the 1950s. They were welcomed in the town of crime. They were Kursky Nicks, Mike Fabin, Bobby, I mean, uh, Mike Gillick, Bobby Joe Fabin, Carl Douglas, Toehead White. Now, Toehead White, he was the accused killer of Pauline Pusser, who was Buford Pusser's wife in the movie of Walking Tall. And it's amazing that my brother was murdered one month and 14 days after Pauline Pusser was murdered on August the 12th of 1967. Ronnie was murdered September the 26th, 1967, one month, 14 days later. And I explained that because after I was told about the Dixie Mafia and the corruption and the gambling and the murders and things that took place, uh, they also are the ones that murdered the Sherrys in 1987. This is public knowledge for anyone to check out. Uh, I found pictures of my father's. I'm not proud to say this, but, you know, the truth is the truth. And if you're going to tell the story, you can't candy coat just because it happens to be one of your family members or your kin. You have to tell it like it is. Yes, I found pictures of my father sitting at the table in his kitchen playing cards with Mike Gillick, Bobby Joe Fabin, Carl Douglas, Toehead White, uh, Bill Rhodes. You know, so, yeah, they, they did exist. They are real, and I have the proof that they are. Um, but, like I say, they went, for, they killed a guy named Frank Corso, Korsky Nix. He is now serving a life, two life sentences, I guess, for the Sherry's and as well as the Frank Corso murder that took place in New Orleans back in the 70s. Uh, he is still alive. I wrote to him in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana, concerning the, my father's death. So, yeah, the Dixie Mafia is still existing. I think there's some other ones like the Simon City Royals that have taken over. But they are they are real, and anyone that thinks that they're not, I would love to take him out to my brother and father's grave, let him stand there and see. So, Phyllis, do you you say that they're still around today? Do you think that do you think, have they like merged with other gangs and groups and things like that that maybe we don't recognize them as we maybe would have back in the day when your brother and father were murdered? Yeah, back in the days like in the sixties, fifties, sixties, and seventies when you know it was all starting, they were just like your next door neighbor. Guys, say for instance, if you had 15 guys come over to your brother's house and sit around and talk and stuff, they formed this little loosely knit gang of thugs, and then that's when they started killing and murdering. They're not as now like our gangs, you know, the notable where they have the bandanas or the the britches legs rolled up a certain thing or a certain color. They didn't go by that. They just went by a group getting together, and whoever had the most money controlled them. Uh, whoever had the most pull and I guess was the bulliest of the bunch, you know, that's where they controlled or how they were controlled back then. They even 
after going to prison and doing things like that, you know, they still, uh, Kursky Nix had more pull inside the prison, I guess, more or less than he did on the outside. And to this day, I am sure that he still has a lot of pull. So but there are, was yeah, some of the, the older groups and some of the ones that I am mentioning, uh, Kursky Nix, he's still alive. Uh, there was another, the guy that was involved in with my brother. I personally, and I'm going to say this, you know, as far as no respect to your show thing, but the guy Jeffrey Dennis Bass that was with my brother and is noted in the obituary in some of the articles, yes, he was, uh, I have been told, involved in with the mafia. So, yeah, mm-hmm. they're still alive. They're still out there. So, and, and the Kirsten family, Hicks at the time was like the head head guy, is that correct? Correct, he was. He was the one that was more or less telling and ordering the hits, and a lot of the others just took it out. Now, Bobby Joe Fabian, Mike Gillick, that owned all the strip joints along the coast, he had a lot of pull also. And are those people still alive? No, Bobby Joe Fabian, Mike Gillick, um, Carl Douglas, no, they are they are all deceased now. Okay, but then have there been, like, new members recruited into this along, you know, over the years? Have have other people joined in that possibly from behind bars, Kirksey Nix, has some kind of power over? You know, Delilah, I really don't know. I'm sure that there is, and hopefully there are some people that have this knowledge that will come forward and, you know, answer some of these questions that hear the show today or if I replay it. And some people that are in law enforcement that know, uh, I'm sure that they have, that they're still out there, and I'm sure that family members have taken up where the older ones have taken off. But to say positive, you know, I really don't know. I cannot answer that in a positive answer. Right. And as you were growing up, or or maybe after after your father's murder, and after you really got into investigating their murders. Have you had any threats from possibly members of the Dixie Mafia? Well, indirectly, I guess. I called uh, when the Sherry's was murdered. You know, of course, I found out about the Sherry's murders in 1987, and I'll go into that in the show. But after I found out, after 2013, when I found out for sure that, yes, they were murdered by the Dixie Mafia, I contacted a Rex Armistead, who was the investigator that Lynn Sherry had handled to investigate the Sherry, her mother and father's uh, murders, the Sherry's murders. He was in Lula, Mississippi, very old at that time, and I called and I contacted him. As I explained my father's story and my brother's story, he came back and he said, little lady, I want to ask you, do you have children? I said, yes, I do. He said, you may want to leave this alone. Um, He called me several other times and we had some conversations. And then as well as Robert Nix, who is Kursky Nix's son, he came on my Facebook page several years ago when I first started out with it. Uh, He asked me why was I putting his name on my page. I asked him why was he on my page. He stated that I had invited him back. No, he had come on my page and was commenting, just going up liking pictures of my father and my dad. I knew who he was. So he and I had some exchange of words on there, and I finally blocked him. Um, 
He threatened me with an attorney as for putting his name on the page. But as far as any direct threat or physical action at this time, no, I have not. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Well, let's let's go into uh, the background of your brother Ronnie's murder. What was what was he like? What was let's let's let people know what he meant to you. What kind of a person he was? What he was doing in his life at the time? And then you know, leading up to and after he was shot. Okay, Ronnie was the third of four children. Uh, when Ronnie was around three years old, Ronnie developed polio. So one leg was a lot smaller than Ronnie's, you know, than his other leg, and Ronnie had to wear a brace from, like, up the thigh area down that had to be inserted into his shoes, which were special ordered. So, you know, he didn't have a good life as far as being able to run and jump and girlfriends and different things like that because of his physical disability. But as far as Ronnie, he was an awesome kid. He was a kind, sweet kid, good-looking. Well, of course, you know, him being my brother, I'm going to say he's good-looking, but he really was. He was just uh, looked like a little young Elvis to me. He was a good kid. But my parents divorced, and Ronnie was probably about maybe 10. Anyway, when Ronnie was 15, he went to live with my dad. He had some issues with my stepdad, who was verbally abusive. So Ronnie had been with my dad maybe two years before he was killed, but he was just a, he was a good, caring, loving kid. He really was. He was a good kid. So what was he doing around the time that he was murdered, Phyllis? Was, I, I understand he was, was he out living on his own at 17? Did he have a job? What did he do? You know, Delilah, there's so much that, on this that I'm still trying to seek and trying to get answers, but after Ronnie went to visit my dad, He was not there long before he had gone to Burns, Oregon. Dad, for some reason, unknowing this day to me, Daddy had sent Ronnie to uh, Burns, Oregon. I was told it was like an academy, like a job corps type school to help him with skills and things because he had dropped out of school there at the time. Um, I do not know why he was there, but he had not been back to Daddy's but probably about a year, and he... Moved. He had gone to work at a McDonald's, working as, you know, I guess a little help there at McDonald's. He had gotten involved in with Kersky Nicks, Mike Gillick, and Bobby Joe Fabian, all of the ones just called Douglas, Jeffrey Bass, who was the nephew of my dad's ex-wife. They had been divorced for about a year before Ronnie was killed. She had two sons named Eddie Ray and Irvin Moore. He had gotten with those. They were all older than Ronnie. So for some reason, Ronnie had moved out. He was dating a little girl named Kathy. Her name is Kathy Grayson, and she married a guy named uh, Hendren. Her last name was Hendren, but she passed away in 2008. But Ronnie was dating her, and my dad was one of these kind, you know, come come dark, you go home. If, uh, if you're not married, you might as well be finding you somewhere else to go when it came nighttime. So I'm sure Ronnie, Dad, was real strict on Ronnie. So Ronnie had just recently moved into a, I guess we would call him an apartment, but back then I guess there were a rooming house or boarding house. He had not been there more than just a couple of months with this Jeffrey Bass whenever he was killed. So I guess. Well, how how did he and Jeffrey Bass come to be roommates? 
I guess, victim of association. Uh, he had met Jeffrey Bass by my dad's ex-wife because Jeffrey was the ne- was the nephew of Rose, my dad's ex-wife. So Ronnie being involved with all of them, they were friends. That would just be like, say, if you and Mary Jane Ellis live next door and all of a sudden you've graduated school or all of a sudden you decide to move out and you and her decide, hey, let's rent an apartment, we'll share expense, and we'll be on our own. You know, that that feeling of freedom and being on his own. And, of course, I'm sure Daddy was glad he decided to move out. So he, they were just sharing an apartment together as two friends, say, like if you and your friend decided to share an apartment as roommates. Okay. Well, then, okay, leading up to um, the day that he was killed, what what was transpiring? Do you know anything that was going on that day before this happened or, or not? I do not. I had talked to my dad the week before, and he'd not even mentioned, you know, anything with Ronnie. I was just had that weird feeling riding around that day that something was wrong, and I called my dad and asked him, how was Ronnie? Was he okay? You know, of course, Dad said, yeah, he's fine. He had just, uh, you know, spoke with him. He was doing great. So as far as I know, there were no issues. Okay, so he wasn't having any issues. And so when this happened, um uh, did, did you know right away, or did you find out later as you were looking into it as to um, authorities not being called immediately that his body was cleaned and so forth? Go go a little bit through that. What what happened, and, and where did the information come from? Okay. Yeah, I had, like I said, I called my dad that day, told him that, you know, I was worried about Ronnie. Daddy said, I told him I wanted my brother to come stay with me for a while, that I just had a weird feeling something was wrong. My dad said he took Ronnie over a pair of shoes that afternoon, told Ronnie I was going to pick him up the next day. I wanted him to come stay with me. Now, unknowing back then, but I, you know, how you can just put the puzzle together. Now, I know that once I called my dad and asked him about Ronnie, I indicated that I was worried about him and I wanted him to come stay with me. My dad, knowing the background, knowing the involvement with the Dixie Mafia, knowing that Ronnie was maybe getting in over his head, hanging around with that group and getting involved, my dad jumped at the chance to force Ronnie to come stay with me. I'm sure that if Ronnie didn't want to come, Dad says, yeah. you know. But anyway, Dad uh, went over, took Ronnie a pair of shoes, gave him some money, and I was going to pick Ronnie up the next day. I went to the grocery, picked up groceries, washed my car, got the kids ready, got back home. There was a note on my door, and I still have that note from 1967. I said, Phyllis, call your mom as soon as possible. We have some bad news for you. When I called, my aunt answered the phone, and, of course, my little brother had been shot. Now, do I think that my dad knew who done it then? No, I really don't because, and as you were saying, how did I find out, you know, on this thing, uh, during the funeral and the different stuff like that, Dad talked to us and told us that Ronnie had been shot. He had been shot with a 410 shotgun. Uh, there was n- no case, no evidence or anything. My dad, through the couple of months later and talking with my dad and visiting, Dad made the statements uh, that Ronnie was bathed and cleaned up, that Rose, his ex-wife, had um, bathed him, cleaned him up, trying to save him. 
I even spoke with her myself, and she told me verbally herself that she had bathed and cleaned Ronnie up trying to save him before they got the ambulance or anything there. So, you know, this wasn't hearsay. This came directly from her. And then, of course, the same thing came from my dad. The same thing came from, and I'm thinking, I don't know why this name, because on it, uh, Ken Brown, one of the investigators, but he had also made the statement that, you know, that the nurse there, the Rose, my dad's ex-wife, she had tried to help save Ronnie. So it just came from different ones that through the years of talking. But, um, and I'm fixing to get off track, so we'll go back to the direct question that you asked. But as far as knowing about that, also on Ronnie, you asked, how did I find out about it? We were over a couple of months later. We were over to friends of my dad's. And my dad asked me to go in and call. He was listening on one phone and I was on the other. He asked me to call Rose, his ex-wife, and pretend that I had just gotten to his house and he wasn't there and to ask her if she had any idea where he was. I did. She called, She told me that, no, she had not seen Dad. She said, but I know what you want to know about your brother. She said, if you will come to my house and come alone and bring no one with you, she said, I will tell you what you want to know. She said, but you cannot, and she kept stressing during the conversation, you cannot bring anyone with you and you cannot tell anyone where you're going. At that point, my daddy started waving his hands to hang up the phone, hang up the phone. After I hung up the phone, my dad told me to never, ever contact that SOB again, to never call her. My daddy knew at that point what had happened. He suspected Jeffrey Bass, and he suspected Rose as being involved. But he, do, you believe, I, do you believe if you had gone over there, you would have been in danger? Oh, yes. She she despised me to a certain extent because my dad and I were so close. I mean, my dad was my world, and she was very jealous of me. So, yeah, I think that she would have, and she knew she knew how inquisitive and how I was even back growing up as a teenager. You know, once I set my mind to do something or once I knew something was wrong, I guess I, it was like I felt that I was the protector of my brothers. You know, when my mom and dad divorced, mom worked, dad was gone, you know, and I became the mom to my brothers. And she knew I would not back off. She knew that I would be like a bulldog with rabies. So, yeah, she she knew she needed to get rid of me. Wow. Okay, well, all right, let's fast forward uh, 36 years, April 18, 2003. What happened? I received a call around maybe it was on a Friday night, well, Saturday morning, I guess, because it was after midnight, Friday night. I received a call from my dad's attorney friend, Roy Strickland. He said, hey, when I answered the phone, I had had surgery on my leg, so I was in a cast and was, you know, half asleep. And he said, hey, girl, he said, how are you? You know, of course, I said, fine, Roy. He said, no, honey, how are you really? And I said, well, I'm fine. I'm thinking, you know, midnight, I'm trying to sleep. Um, I said, I'm fine. He said, you don't know about your dad, do you? And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, what's dad done today? And I'm assuming they had just come from the casino. Maybe dad had hit it big or won something or, you know, whatever. So I said, no, what? He said, Phyllis, your daddy committed suicide today. So that's how I found out that my dad had supposedly, allegedly, to have committed suicide. But 
when I, and I don't know if this is what you want me to get into, but whenever I got that call, I immediately, and I can't go into, Delilah, of how I felt or what I felt at that point, because if I do, I won't be able to do the show, so I'll bypass, but anything that you can think horrible or gut-wrenching, I felt that night. But I got up, went and told the kids and my grandkids what had happened. I left for Gulfport knowing, knowing with every ounce of energy or anything in my being, my dad did not commit suicide. I knew my dad was murdered because, and if you don't mind me backtracking, I will explain that, because yes, on November, please. okay, on my dad's birthday was November the 26th, so Thanksgiving, you know, was my dad's birthday and Thanksgiving. It was a ritual that, you know, I'd been to my dad's from the time I was old enough to drive until he was deceased. You know, I went to my dad's, so we were in Gulfport. We had gone to have breakfast. We were sitting at the table, Dad and I talking. All of a sudden, my dad looks behind me, and he mumbles the words SOB. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, because my dad hardly ever cursed. So as I turned around, my dad immediately demanded I turn back around. He's turning around, and he said, don't you look at that SOB. So I turned back around knowing that my dad's whole demeanor and everything had changed. Just within a few seconds, the guy gets up. He walks past my dad and I sitting there at the table, and I could tell my dad was intimidated by him, by his facial expressions and stuff. Dad just kept sort of looking down. The guy glares at my dad and I with a little spurky grin, walks out the door. After he gets far enough to where my dad knew that I could not catch up with this guy, my dad looks at me and he said, do you know who that was? And I said, no. And we have already stated that Jeffrey Bass was my brother, uh, my uh, brother's roommate and stuff. So, you know, I'll say alleged, but my dad looked at me and he said, that's Jeffrey Dennis Bass. He said, that's the old boy that killed Ronnie. Well, that was the first time in 36 years that my father had ever admitted that my brother was killed rather than suicide. I made this, my dad and I, he wouldn't talk anymore. He just, when I started to say something, I asked him, though, I said, well, why didn't you tell me, Daddy? I said, you know I wanted to talk to him. My dad said, I know you did. That's why I didn't tell you. Well, we sat there, ate our breakfast. I started to say something else. My dad just raised his hand up as if to say no more, so I didn't say anything else. After my dad and my husband left to go on back to the house, I lingered back for a few minutes. I had my own car because I was going on to the grocery and, you know, do some things for Dad. I lingered back and spoke with the waitress. I made the statement to the waitress. She said, yes, she identified the guy again. She told me where he lived. She told me that he intimidated my dad every time my dad was in there, and he was the one that my dad had maintained, killed my little brother all those years. I made the statement to her that I really feel got my dad murdered to a certain extent because I said to her, well, you can tell this Jeffrey Dennis Bass that I will walk the streets of hell until I find him and find out why he killed my dad. Well, I feel that less than four months later, from November the 27th of 2002 until April the 18th of 2003, he showed me. My father was gunned down in his driveway, and I have issues as to whether my dad was really shot in his driveway or whether my dad was murdered someone else and brought back and put in his driveway 
due to the crime scene. I've never seen crime scene photos. They will not release any of those to me. Uh, they've not released them to other people that have requested them as of yet. Um, but I've never seen, but when I got there, there was no crime scene tape around the house. It was as if I had just pulled up to your door to come visit you for lunch. The house was spotless, cleaned, as almost it had been detailed out. There were things gone from the house. Uh, my dad's car was gone. Uh, you know, there were just so many issues now that I do not think my dad was killed in his driveway. So I'm going to, but uh, he showed me why. My dad had started talking, and they knew that my dad had just implicated this Jeffrey Bass as being the alleged killer of my brother. They knew that my dad knew other things pertaining to the Sherry's murders, which we will hopefully get into this. Um, they knew that my dad was getting old, he was starting to talk, and they had to shut him up. And that's why I personally feel that my father was murdered. Well, go ahead and get into the other other things that you, the Sherry's murder. Explain okay. that. That was kind of a high-profile um, case in your area, and nationally, yes. really. It is even to this day. They're now making new movies. They've just done another documentary on the Sherry's case. And whenever I spoke to the producer that was doing the new documentary that has just come out, I explained to him the real truth and told him he was very arrogant. Well, let me just say, take that word back. He was sort of rude, um, stating that even though he was sorry for the plight of my father and my brother being murdered, he had a movie to make. So they redone the documentary on the Sherry's. But in my father was active bailiff for Judge Sherry in 1987, whenever Judge Sherry was murdered. I had come home from work early that day to pick up my youngest son from school. And I called my dad. I called my dad 24-7. I called him every morning, every night, and just about in between time. We'd call to say it was raining, or we'd call to say it stopped raining. So anyway, I called thinking that my stepmother would probably answer, because it was early in the morning, mid-morning. My dad answered. And I said, well, hey, Daddy. I said, you're home early. He said, yeah. He said, Dickinson, that was just a nickname. He said, Daddy's had one of the worst days of his life. And I said, why, Daddy? What happened? He said, somebody killed Sherry last night. And I said, oh, my God. I said, what happened? I knew at this point how I could tell my dad was just really distraught. He said, they shot him, damn it, they shot him. Well, Dad, I asked Dad what happened. He went into saying that he had gotten to the courthouse that morning and he to make coffee, adjust the heat and air like he always had done. He said he kept waiting for Judge Sherry to show up. He said, finally, the court reporter came in, and there were different ones saying, Dan, you know, cases are waiting to be heard. Where's the judge? My dad said he called over to the partnership law firm. Uh, Pete Hallett had a partnership with Judge Sherry. So dad called over there, and he spoke with Pete. And he said, he says, Pete, have you seen Sherry? He said Pete Hallett told him no, he had not seen him. My dad said, well, something is the matter, he said, or he would have been here by now. My dad said that uh, he told Pete Hallett, said, I'm going out to the house. He said Pete Hallett told him, said, well, I'll meet you there. Dad said when they got there, and I have no idea as to who got there first or anything, but Dad said when they got there that the door was ajar, the door was cracked open. He said he hollered for Margaret. He hollered for Judge Sherry. No one answered. He said the dogs were barking. He said he pushed the door open and went in. 
Now, my dad has told a different story as to the positions of the bodies as to what has been indicated in some of the movies or the things. But my dad said when he walked in, he said Judge Sherry was sitting on the sofa, more or less like sprawled off, off the sofa back, but he had been shot four times. My dad said he went into the bedroom of Margaret. He said she was in a kneeling position by the bed as if in a saying a prayer position. He said she had been shot in execution style. I asked my dad if he knew who had done it, and dad said, no, but Sherry does. I said, why? He said, because there was no forced entry. He said there was three cookies in a saucer on the coffee table. He said there was a half a glass of milk, and he said on the counter was a cup and there was one in the sink. He said, so whoever it was was drinking coffee or whatever with Judge Sherry. I made the statement. I said, oh, my God, those poor kids. My dad said, well, the kids don't know anything about it yet. He said, Pete told me to come home, to go on home and let him handle it, that he did not want the media or the kids to get wind of it uh, before he could get the corner and everyone out. Well, my dad was not a strong man, and he thought an awful lot of Judge Sherry, so I'm sure Daddy was probably, as I would call it, spazzing out at that moment, so Dad came home. Well, when Dad came home thinking that Pete was going to handle everything, of course, you know, when he walks in the door, phone's ringing. I, I'm the first one to make contact with my dad. Everything's still new. So my dad's just confiding in me and to me as to everything that happened. Later that afternoon or that evening before bedtime, I called my dad to make sure he was okay. My dad did not want to talk about it. He was very elusive in everything that I was asking. I'm thinking that it's just he's upset because this is his dear friend. You know, he's not sure what's going on and just seems, you know, witness two murders. So I do not talk about it a lot through the months, weeks, whatever. Afterwards, every time I would ask, Dad would change the subject. He would say, let's just talk about happy thoughts, okay, Dad? Dickens, let's just talk about happy thoughts. I mean, he talked to me like I was three. So we got, sort of got off the subject, never talked about it again. Uh, in 19, in the early 1990s, now I had stated 1997, I was mistaken by that, and I had to go back and pull records and dates to confirm that it was in 89 or 1990. I was in a Waffle House having breakfast, and we had to go pick up some papers on some land we'd sold. There was a man and a woman sitting behind me. As I leaned back, they were talking. I heard the woman say, yeah, they shot old Sherry four times and said they got Margaret too. I got her too. I immediately turned around and I said, excuse me. I said, are you talking about Judge Sherry and them in Gulfport? I associated everything with Gulfport rather than Biloxi. They never spoke. They never said a word. The man gets up. They get up. He sort of glares at me. They pay for their food and they leave. I only had a pager at that time, did not have a phone. When I got home, I called my dad, and I was telling him what I'd heard. My dad went, oh, he just went irate, crazy. He said, he kept calling me Phyllis Elaine, and that's like when you're a kid doing something wrong, when they give that middle name, you know, you sort of perk up and pay attention. So he kept saying, Phyllis Elaine, what did he look like? What did he say to you? He repeated this over and over. I finally said, nothing, Daddy. He did not say anything. He just glared at me and walked out the, limped out the door. Did not mean that to be ugly. At that point when I said limped out the door, 
My dad said, good God Almighty. He said, that was John Ransom. He said, that's the SOB and Pete Hallett that murdered Sherry. My dad, he was almost hysterical. He said, don't you ever, don't you ever tell a soul what you tell me. Do you hear me? Don't you ever tell anybody you let daddy handle it. Well, of course, I wasn't about to bring that issue up. So, in fact, it didn't mean anything to me because I didn't know the mafia. I didn't. Daddy wasn't mentioning the mafia. He wasn't even saying anything about that. So I had no idea. So, of course, you know, it didn't mean anything to me. It sort of fizzled out of my mind, and that was it. Until, and then, of course, in 1997, I, every time I was from 1967 until even now, whenever I would, or to my father's death, should I say, I would call Gulfport police indicating that my brother's death was a suicide. I mean, was a murder. It was not a suicide. Telling them different things that I had found out and different things that I would know during the years. As soon as I would do that, it would not be more than 45 minutes. My dad would call me, ask me what was I doing, that Ronnie was dead and gone. Leave it alone. They would go straight to my dad, and unknowing to me then, but knowing now, they would tell my dad, you know, she's talking, she's digging, you need to shut her up. So my dad would call me and tell me, leave it alone. Even to, after a while, he would say, leave it the hell alone before you get someone else killed. I did. I knew that that issue was strong, but I had no idea as to why. You know, being a kid back then and through the years, I, I didn't understand why. So as soon as he would calm down, I would call again. They would go straight to my dad. So uh, I even called Rose. Well, you know, excuse me, I think it's it's a good thing to know that your father was somehow connected as, was he a sheriff or worked for the sheriff? My dad had was sworn in under Roy Hobbs, who was the uh, sheriff and stuff, back in the 60s and 70s. That is whenever the Dixie Mafia corruptness was so bad, and that's whenever they were killing and, you know, stealing and doing mm-hmm. and all the drugs and the money laundering and stuff. Dad was sworn in under, and he was a rookie cop, like when my brother was killed. So through the years, Daddy worked for the law enforcement. Most of, in its public knowledge, if you Google Dixie Mafia 1967, it tells all about the state line mob, Buford Pussard's wife, all of them being killed and murdered and the stuff that went on with the mafia. This Kursky Nicks, Bobby Joe Fabian, Toehead White, all of those that were involved in my brother's death. It tells all about them. Then you come up to Dixie Mafia 1987. It tells of the Sherry's murders. Of course, my dad was cop all through those years, yes. And whenever my dad retired out, he was lieutenant for the Harrison County Sheriff's Department. So my dad had gotten... So he had law enforcement connections for all those years. So... It wouldn't it wouldn't be unusual for them basically to just call him up and say, Hey, your daughter's poking too hard again. Oh no, yeah, they went straight to my dad. Well dad was probably there in the sheriff's department whenever I was calling, you know, because he was uh he worked as like I say, he worked as a lieutenant, he worked as a detective. Um he he had many times had gone with the other attorney out to Angola prison and had talked with Kursky Nix because he would tell me I've been at Angola with, you know, talking to a boy named Kursky Nix. That's how I knew the the name Kursky Nix whenever the mafia subject came up. And then I saw the Kursky Nix. I remembered incidents of my dad speaking of him back in the 80s and stuff. So 
everything was coming together. So yeah, Dad was there, and he was uh, he was bailiff for Judge Sherry. So he was there, you know, at the courthouse all the time. And after Judge Sherry was murdered, my dad went on to be bailiff for a judge named uh, I think it's Jerry Terry, but a Judge Terry. And he was even working with a Judge Terry whenever he was murdered. And I have to say alleged murder because they have still got his case as a suicide and refused to change it. So so neither your father nor your brother's case has been changed from suicide to anything else after all these years. No. And what is so ironic, and I'm glad you brought that up, because I had requested information. I was never, there was never an investigation done on my brother. My my mother made the statement one time when we were at my father's house, and this is an, another thing that I knew something was wrong. My, we were all there for Thanksgiving, and Dad, my stepmother, my step, my dad, my stepmother, and then my stepfather, my mother. You know, they agreed that on certain holidays they would all be cordial and nice, and everybody get together. So we were all at my dad's for this uh, Thanksgiving, and. My mother, this has been maybe a couple of years after Ronnie was killed, and my mother told my dad upon leaving, she said, I'm going to go by the church department and ask them some questions and see what I can find out about Ronnie. Oh, Delilah, my dad jumped up off that porch. I had never seen him act like that. He got right in my mom's face. He told her to get us GD kids, get out of Gulfport, to leave it the H-E-L-L alone before she got another one of us kids killed you know so mother was from that day on my mother knew but we you know to a certain extent we just did not buck my dad when he said something we respected that it was like it was the gospel if he said something and then of course my mother with my dad making that statement she was afraid that maybe if she did pursue it they would kill another one of us kids or something so it stayed my mother died wondering who killed my brother but she knew he was murdered so, mm-hmm. no, we were never given any information. Well, in two th- I kept calling. I finally got the four-year request. After three denials, I got the four-year request in 2017. Now, Delilah, you tell me, and any of your audience or anyone listening, you tell me your opinion, professional opinion on this. From 1967 until 2017, I called Gulfport Police Department and the Sheriff's Department uh, I called the Sheriff's Department, and I was always, you know, spoke with them until 2017. I was told that, oh, I'm sorry, the Sheriff's Department doesn't have jurisdiction. Both deaths were in the city, and I'm given to the city to speak to as of, you know, from then on. But anyway, they never gave me any information, never sent me anything, never questioned anybody. In 2000, I kept sending them statements. I kept posting on Facebook um, I kept sending requests and the whole full story to the Gulfport Police Department so they would be aware of every incident and everything that I was talking about. Uh, this Captain Craig Peterson, he told me that I was not to call Gulfport Police anymore. I was to carry everything straight to him. He would be handling this case. In this FOIA request that I get, they have I had posted this Jeffrey Bass's picture on my Facebook, Captain Peterson tells me the picture that you posted is not Jeffrey Bass. And for the record as to how I got that picture, in 2013, whenever I called and told the investigator, Adam Cooper, that 
my brother was murdered, did not mention my father, not to confuse the two, and so they wouldn't, you know, connect it and not tell me anything. Hopefully they were just on my brother. Uh, he comes back and asked me if I could identify the guy, and I said yes, and that's when he told me, he said, that he was 99% sure my brother was murdered by a member of the Dixie Mafia, and I asked him why was he telling me this. He said, because everyone you're naming are members of the Dixie Mafia. That at that point, he said, can you identify him? Well, this was on February the 5th of 2013. On May the 9th, and it was ironic that it was sent on May the 9th because May the 9th was my little brother's birthday. On May the 9th, he emails me a six-man lineup. The top one, the third one over on the top row was this Jeffrey Bass. He asked me at that point, could I identify a Jimmy Johnson? I said, who? He said, Jimmy Johnson. I said, I don't know a Jimmy Johnson. They kept trying to force me into saying that this Jeffrey Bass that I was talking about was a guy named Jimmy Johnson. I said, I've never heard the name of Jimmy Johnson, and no, it was Jeffrey Bass. But when he sent that lineup, anyway, I posted it on Facebook, and there were several people came back and said, yes, that is him. That's the real one. That's the one that we know. And, yes, he was involved in with the Dixie Mafia. So that was confirmed. But when I got the FOIA request, all of a sudden this Captain Peterson says he brought in a guy named Jeffrey Bass. But it was not the one that I mentioned and that this guy was only 15. I said, how can a 15-year-old child share apartment and expense and working with my brother. I said, no, the real one was 18. But anyway, he, he goes back in. They reiterate the fact that, yes, there was two guns brought over, that a friend of Ronnie's brought two guns over, but all of a sudden now they can't. They don't know the friend's name. They can't remember anything other than a friend, a big guy, brought him over, that they did not think the 410 would fire. They did not think it had a firing pin in. I questioned why would he bring a gun that you do not think that's going to shoot and doesn't have a firing pin in it. He states that they go down to the dump to shoot the guns. When they get back home, that this guy, this Jeffrey Bass, alleged one that he's talking about, was going to take my brother to buy some deck shoes. Well, see, they're taking every contents that's in this FOIA request, they're taking from my statements and from things that I have written and explained through the, you know, 50 years of stuff on my brother. So he states that they were going to buy my brother some deck shoes. I said, Captain Peterson, my brother could not wear deck shoes. My brother had polio. I said, you had to buy two pair of shoes, one, say, like a seven and a half or eight, one a six or five and a half. We had to have his brace inserted into the smaller shoe. I said, so that right there is a liar. I have all of this on tape. This is a tape conversation that has been turned over to the authorities that they have. So... Uh, I told him, I said, no, he couldn't wear deck shoes. I said, but go on. He said, and they, the two guns they brought over, I said, why would they bring a gun that they did not think would shoot? I've already said that. Okay, we'll go back to the shoes. But uh, then he states that, yes, there was a girl named Kathy, uh, and they named her as Kathy Grayson Nassasi or Nassasi or whatever, but she married a guy named Denny Hendren, and she's now deceased. All these years, from 67 to 2017, they never could find her, never could bring her in. Then they say that Jeffrey Bass, they talked to Jeffrey Bass's sister, who was married to Eddie Ray Moore or Urban Moore, who was my dad's ex-wife's, you know, oldest son. 
They all of a sudden they've questioned him, they've questioned her, they've they've questioned everybody in 2017 that I named from 1967 up to then, and that they never could bring in and question. I really don't feel personally my personal opinion, and I'm you know, uh, it's my personal opinion. But I do not feel that he even brought these people or questioned them. I think that he is reading from my information and fabricated his four-year request. Uh, also, now they cannot find any of these people. Um, he said that the conversation that he taped with the witnesses and things, that the machine malfunctioned. So he's sorry, but he doesn't have that conversation taped. Well, how convenient is that? And why, from 1967 until now, could they never find or question any of these people, but now that they see that I'm getting outside help, all of a sudden he fabricates this FOIA request information and sends it to me. Uh, he said that there was a file. In 2013, when I'm speaking with Adam Cooper, he asked me to hold on. And when I did, he came back and he said, "Miss Cook, let me look in this file right here. He reads from the file. That is when he gives me the information about the mafia, about everybody, and names the people. All of a sudden, this Captain Peterson says there is no file. He has no file that he's filed my brother's case under my dad's case. I said, how can you file a 1967 um, suicide or a suspected homicide? How can you file that case under my dad's of a 2003 suicide unless you are positive that they are con connected and the same people are all involved, why would you combine those two cases together? And I said, Anthony Piazio was an investigator there. When he told me he had the file, he said, "Miss Cook, I'm making copies of these files more or less as we speak. I'm taking them with me over to the FBI thing. He had the file, but now all of a sudden there is no file, and they just filed everything of my brother's under my dad's case. My, dad's de my brother's death certificate, I was noticing on that, my brother's date of birth was May the 9th of 1950. On his death certificate, they have May the 5th, 1950. But in his FOIA request and stuff, there's so many discrepancies that it's it's almost a joke. Uh, the offense well, report... I'm sorry. Before we before we run out of time, I want to make sure that we get enough time. What kind of updates do you have as far as where does everything sit for you right now? I know you know you've got all of this relatively new information. Is there more? Yes, there is. I have had witnesses come forward, people that tell me yes. The guy that Jeffrey Bassett, the law, are saying, you know, Gulfport police are saying, was it the real guy? they saying, yes, he is. They've located the fact that this Kathy Hendren, she does have family, so I'm sure that they can question and, and prove that she was with my brother. She did call and say that my brother, that he killed him, he killed him. I am working with Cheryl McCollum with the Cold Case Research Investigate in Atlanta. Uh, Laura Petler, who is... Uh, has, is doing the MBAC that does all the forensic specialists for the DNA. I hopefully working with Nancy Grace on getting some of this stuff done. So right now I am still working on some stuff. There's some other things that right now that I have been asked not to share, Delilah, you know, to jeopardize the case. But, yeah, there's some things that are I'm hoping that are going to bring some answers to this. Whether I'll ever get what you can say justice, even like Denny has said, you know, what is justice? After 50 years of this guy walking free, 
to kill my brother, my dad, or whatever. You know, how do I get justice for that? But hopefully maybe, you know, get some closure. The FBI, the governor's office, the state's attorneys, the district attorney. I even contacted a Kenneth Maines with Investigative Society of Cold Case who offered to take the case pro bono. They refused to let him in. So Gulfport Police, and the guy has told me they never invite anyone in and don't see them doing so now. So, you know, unless the laws are changed to where, you know, after the police department does not do their job within, say, two to three months, and that's giving them plenty of time, ample time to do something. Because once DNA is destroyed, once these police, just like my case, is involved, they stall you, they put you off, they delay these cases until all the time frame, uh, your time limit for filing stuff, you know, it's all gone. You're, you're over your statute of limitations on certain things. They know this. And as long as the laws are where that, that no one can come in and investigate and help, these cases are never going to get solved. So right now I am still plugging along, and I'm not going away, not on my own anyway. Now, I may, if, I, if I come up missing, it won't be because I committed suicide or done anything to myself or I went away on my own. I'll make that public knowledge now, but, you know, I'm hoping, you know, to keep on, keep on, you know, plugging along till I get some answers, Delilah. Oh, yes, absolutely. And now let me just clarify something that um, Jeffrey Dennis Bass, is he still alive? He was alive in 2002. I saw him in the Waffle House. Yes, I still feel that he is alive. I've been told that he had turned state's evidence before. So whether they have given him another name or put him in witness protection or whether he'll wind up dead before this goes to court to keep him from saying or being testified, uh, yeah, he was he was still alive in 2002. I saw him myself. Kursky Nix is still alive. I've written to him, and I have several letters back from him. He's still in Terre Haute, Indiana. Pete Hallett, he is still alive. Uh, you know, so the ones that I feel that were involved and implicated in my brother and dad's death, they're all still alive. Mm. Of course, we're all at the age of running out of time, but as of right now, yeah, they're all still alive, so... Exactly. And and this Jeffrey Dennis Bass, no one can locate him? Uh, I haven't been back to Mississippi personally, but now I do have some people that are working on things to locate him. But Gulfport Police, you know, and I'm saying this, this is my personal opinion. I hold no show that I ever do a show with or Denny Griffin or podcast or the transparency case. You know, this is just my statements. This has nothing to do with them to be liable for anything that I'm saying. But it's my personal opinion, and I'm alleging that, yes, he is still alive. Are they protecting him for some reason? Yes. Why would they blame another guy that I've never even heard of and implicate him in the death of my brother whenever I've never heard of him? Now, what his involvement is in the case or what his you know, involvement with my father, it's got to be something or they would not be implicating him. I private messaged him twice. He would not come forward even to defend himself. So, you know, yeah. So nobody all- knows where this guy popped up. In, I mean, he just kind of popped up at the last minute, and they're trying to trying to pin it all on him, and we don't even it's- know who he is. 
I'll say his name. Uh, his name is Jimmy Johnson because they kept saying, trying to make me think that Jeffrey Bass was right. Jimmy Johnson. No, it wasn't. He is a retired police officer out of Gulfport, Mississippi. He is on Facebook. I did private message him several times and tell him that I wasn't alleging or implicating him in anything, but it seemed that Gulfport police was. Did he care to come forward and defend himself or tell me why that they would say this? Did he know my father? He will not come forward. Now, I've had people come forward that knows him have told different things, but he will not come forward himself. Why? And if, I, if I'm if i telling you, this is why I said, well, then why they implicated it as a murder? Yes, because I told them I saw Jeffrey Bass. My dad said Jeffrey Bass was the old boy that killed my brother. Then they say, oh, no, you didn't see Jeffrey Bass. You saw Jimmy Johnson. Well, then why are you even saying that Jimmy Johnson is a real live true person and implicating him as being the killer of my brother? Because you're you're doing that. Once you say, oh, no, it's Jimmy Johnson, then you're implicating the killer as being Jimmy Johnson, or how would you even know him and say he was involved in with that situation at all? Well, and, and I, the situation arises, if they're trying to pin it on somebody, then they have then the first thing they have to do is admit that it was a murder and it wasn't a suicide. You know, Levi Page and I have talked about this several times, and I ran it by Levi just for a personal, you know, expert opinion or someone, you know, unbiased opinion on that. And you, you're just like Levi. Yeah. Why would you even name this guy and say him if you if you say no? Your brother was a suicide. We don't know who you saw or why you even saying anyone because you know, yeah, you may have saw Jeffrey Bass, but he's not. He didn't kill your brother. No, they're blaming it on Jimmy Johnson now. And taking the heat that's, off that's of quite interesting. Well, yeah. Phyllis, in the last couple minutes that we have, time is running down. Sure. Um, do you have any any um, last words or or anything that you would like listeners to take away from our conversation today? Uh, only that whenever I told this. Captain Peterson, I said, Captain Peterson, I said, I am, a, he said, Miss Cook, I'm offended you're lying to me. I said, I'm offended that you're, li-. no, he said, I'm offended you're calling me a liar. I said, I'm offended that you're lying. And I said, I'm not going away. He said, oh, Miss Cook, I know you're not. Well, you know, I am not going away. And I am going to keep on with the fight for justice for my brother and father until my dying day. That's all I've got to say is never give up because after it took me 36 years to hear, yes, your brother was murdered, to hear those words. So, you know, by not giving up, I found out, yes, my brother was murdered. Now I know who murdered him, the gang that was involved, and everything that's taken place, and my dad. So until I get the correct answers and justice of some sort, don't give up, and I'm not giving up. And, and I don't people, think you will. You, nope. It's people like you and Denny. You know, people say, are you not scared? Do I think that they'll kill me? Sure. They killed a judge. They've killed multiple people. They have no problem with killing me. But am I going to ever back down and walk away? No, that's not going to happen. Fear was looking down the gun, my father looking down the gun barrel when they blew his head off. Fear was my little brother probably begging for his life when they killed him. When they did that, they took my fear button. I have no fear button left. 
Good for you, Phyllis. And and I totally believe everything that you're saying. And I commend you, really. I commend you for the bravery and the courage that that it takes to to shine the light on all of this for over 50 years. I, it's still every time I think about this case, it it boggles my mind that it's been 50 years and and nothing has really changed. So. Well, you know, we're it coming took 50 to... years of not giving up, but I did not find out my really true down-to-the-earth fight until 2013. But from 2013 until now, it's been one hell of a fight, and I'm not giving up. Good deal. So, well, we've got to end this, this episode of the Transparency Project, and we thank everyone for listening. And please come back and look for more podcasts to listen to on the Inside Lens Network. And until the next time, please stay safe out there and be kind to each other. Thanks, Delilah.